0: Nine dead, 22 others injured since 2006 because of natural gas leaks. What are Texas regulators doing about it? The story on the Texas Standard.
1: Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group. Software delivered as promised. No surprises.
0: I'm David Brown coming up an investigative reporter with the Dallas Morning News tells us about dangers facing homeowners due to natural gas leaks and the failure of Texas regulators. To hold companies accountable, we'll hear details. Going up, normally gas prices drift lower as we move into fall, but a four-year high in the price accrued today As some worried, we'll look at what's behind it. And our attitude toward doctors, bad for our health? All that and a whole lot more coming up today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard time on this 24th day of September 2018. I'm David Brown. A fast-developing story. Just as we were coming into the studio, several news outlets, including Axios, reporting Rod Rosenstein, the U.S. Deputy Attorney General, reported to have discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Donald Trump, has already or is just about to tender his resignation. We'll bring you the latest as we get it. Also, a bombshell in the Kavanaugh confirmation saga, plus fallout from the first debate between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke, all stories we are working on, but first we're turning to an incident you may have heard about earlier this year and a follow-up. Back in February, a 12-year-old girl named Linda Rogers died when her home in northwest Dallas exploded as she was getting ready for school. A preliminary report cited a crack in a natural gas line, but now an investigation by the Dallas Morning News finds that since 2006, more than two dozen homes across north and central Texas have been destroyed or damaged because of natural gas leaking from Atmos Energy's aging system. Nine people have died. At least 22 others have suffered injuries. Atmos denies fault. And what do Texas regulators say? What action are they taking? Well, here's where it gets even more interesting. Carrie Aspinwall is one of the reporters covering this. Carrie, welcome to Texas Standard.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I get that in your latest story, it appears that Texas regulators were less worried about the dangers posed by atmos leaks than they were what federal regulators it seems
2: yeah we have uh, some text messages that we got through an open records request and these are two people who work for the railroad commission of texas and they're at this uh, one of them at least is at the scene or near the scene of where a house has exploded and a little girl died earlier this year in dallas and what they're worried about in that moment is that they're worried about these federal investigators who've swooped in from uh, the Pipeline Safety Agency and from NTSB. They're worried that they're not going to be fair to Atmos. Uh, one of them says, well, I worried that would skew the investigation. And um, they're talking about how one is always skeptical and always views the operator, the, meaning the gas company, as the guilty party, um, or that they're guilty until proven innocent. Uh, which was, it was just surprising to us because they're supposed to be serving as a public watchdog in this case.
0: As you went back and looked at other similar instances, did you find evidence that uh, that the Railroad Commission, which is the regulatory agency uh, that oversees the natural gas business in Texas, did you find other examples of this sort of approach when it came to Atmos?
2: You know, we did. And I would say that the Railroad Commission would say that they they look at each case individually. As for those text messages, they said that um, that's just proof that they were going into the investigation with an open mind for both parties. But when we looked at their record of um, explosions uh, involving Atmos energy here in Dallas and, and in the northern half of the state when somebody died or was injured, um, you would think they would be fined, the company would be fined if they were found to have a lack safety response, but that wasn't always the case. Um, there were cases where a man died in Irving where the, uh, the company wasn't fined by the state. Uh, a little boy that we wrote about in depth in Sunday's paper who was burned badly and permanently disfigured, um, they received no fine in that case and then another little girl was burned. So um, deaths or injuries don't always result in fines and even when there are some initial documents or records that there's a concerning gas leak caused by corrosion or um, and your ir- lack of a uh, responsible safety uh, reaction when when somebody strikes a line when gas starts leaking mm-hmm. that they don't evacuate people um, that sometimes they let them off the hook That you know, that they atmos would come back and say, Oh, well, you need to consider sometimes years later, uh, consider this other report from a paid expert. And we, we found that it wasn't our gas leak, it was something else. And the railroad commission, in several cases that we found, just said, Okay, atmos, no, fine.
0: They would actually yeah. change their earlier conclusions about what had happened.
2: Yeah, it was it was puzzling to us. Um, you know, we we asked them about this, and they said, you know, um, Atmos and other operators are entitled to due process, and sure. investigations can change as they go on. But we found cases where very early on, right after an explosion, there was a gas leak identified, repaired, uh, documented, and no one is saying that there wasn't a gas leak. But then um, a year or so down on in the enforcement case. All of a sudden, Atmos would decide that that gas leak was not what caused the explosion, and the Railroad Commission seemed to agree with them <laughs> in the end. And well, dro- what, forgive me for
0: interrupting, but, but what yeah. conclusions did you come to for why the Railroad Commission doesn't appear to penalize Atmos Energy?
2: What they told us is that they uh, view fines as one tool. And that they uh, would prefer to bring operators into compliance. So they give operators, Atmos and other gas companies, um, time to correct their violations. And they maintain that all violations uh, are just simply alleged until they're proven. Um, So very often these uh, gas companies like Atmos will be able to uh, go back to the Railroad Commission and say, oh, no, look, we fixed this, we fixed it, so you can't find us. And so in many cases, they aren't fined. Um, it's fines are actually kind of the rarer um, event, and they're not very steep compared to what happens in other states. Uh, the largest fine that we saw when we went through Atmos's record was, I think, $95,000, and it was because they left gas leaking for 17 days uh, after an explosion in Mesquite in 2009. And that explosion destroyed a house, but it didn't kill anybody.
0: But your report points more directly at something else, uh, it seems to me, and that is the role of contributions, political contributions.
2: Well, it's definitely an issue that people have raised with the Railroad Commission. They are allowed to take, uh, you know, campaign contributions from the people they regulate, which a lot of people think is unfair. Um, You know, we didn't find any direct correlation between uh, when campaign donations were made and any of these decisions were made. There wasn't any evidence of that. Um, But it is, it bothers people. Um, I mean, first of all, the Railroad Commission, they don't regulate trains. They regulate oil and gas. Uh, So it A lot of people don't even know what they do.
0: Carrie Aspinwall is an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News. We will link to her latest in the series, Time Bomb, at texasstandard.org. Carrie, thanks again.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: As you may have heard somewhere, Congress is up for grabs. Midterms now just 42 days away. Texas has long offered something of a firewall for Republicans. How so? As Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports, the state's 22nd district could serve as something of a case study.
3: We have a lot of um, professional class areas. I think it's ethnically diverse, but conservative. I mean, it, it sort of represents the state of Texas very well.
4: Scott Bowen is a Republican precinct chair in Clear Lake, near the eastern tip of the 22nd. The district includes suburban neighborhoods in Harris and Brazoria counties, along with most of Fort Bend County. BOWEN HAS LIVED IN THE DISTRICT SINCE INCUMBENT CONGRESSMAN PETE OLSON FIRST RAN FOR OFFICE A DECADE AGO. I DON'T THINK uh, PETE OLSON HAS REALLY HAD um, MEANINGFUL OPPOSITION FROM uh, THE DEMOCRAT SIDE. SINCE BEATING HIS DEMOCRATIC PREDECESSOR, OLSON HAS WON REELECTION BY DOUBLE DIGITS EVERY TIME. BUT JAY IYER, WHO TEACHES POLITICAL SCIENCE AT TEXAS SOUTHERN UNIVERSITY, THINKS 2018 COULD BE DIFFERENT. THE SWING IN THE DISTRICT HAS BEEN and would largely be considered would be the Asian American community. The 22nd has the highest concentration of Asian Americans of any congressional district in Texas. They comprise a diverse group, Indian Americans, Chinese Americans, Vietnamese Americans, and many others. On the whole, they tend to be better educated and more affluent than the average voter. Asian Americans in the district, have, particularly because of income reasons, had voted in the past for republicans but Iyer says the gop's hard right stance on immigration and its protectionist shift on trade have alienated many of those traditionally republican voters that's provided an opening for the democratic candidate Sri preston kulkarni the idea that you would have a candidate that can explicitly appeal to them has i think some value there he's a unique candidate because of his background as a foreign service officer he also happens to speak six languages. Kolkarney is fluent in Hindi and Mandarin Chinese, as well as Spanish. He's been campaigning in those languages to reach native speakers in ways Pete Olson can't. If you look at Fort Bend counties, I see many Asians, they can't even run in a Republican side. Shopnik Khan is a Democratic precinct chair from Katy. Born in Bangladesh, Khan is a naturalized US citizen. He's been active in Fort Bend politics for the past
1: decade. But who is giving you that opportunity is the Democratic Party. And the Asian-American need to understand uh, who is giving us the better platform.
4: Kulkarni is one of six Asian-American candidates on the ballot in Fort Bend this November, all of them Democrats. But even if Asian-Americans vote Democratic en masse, they only represent a fifth of the district's population. To win, Kulkarni also needs to mobilize Latinos, African-Americans, And a lot more voters like this man. My name is Mark Evans, and I'm from, I live in Cinco Ranch, here in Katy. Evans moved to the Houston area from Indiana more than 30 years ago. He's right in Pete Olson's target demographic. He's white, married, and he's voted Republican in the past.
0: I do consider myself anti-incumbent, due to the uh, the over 20 trillion dollars we're
4: in debt, and frankly. I'm just tired of the same old, same old from our elected officials. Evans says he plans to vote for Kulkarni, in no small part because of Olson's spending habits in Congress. But spending is also one of Olson's biggest strengths. He's sitting on a campaign war chest more than double what Kulkarni has. How the Republican uses that money in the coming weeks could make all the difference. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider.
0: And in Austin, Michael Marks in for social media editor, Wells Dunbar, on this Monday. Hey, did you catch the Senate debate Friday night?
5: I sure did. How about you?
0: Oh, you bet. <laughs> Man, <it's, laughs> it was it was uh, really interesting to watch, especially there at the end.
5: Free political theater. Well, many of our listeners had the chance to watch it or listen to it as well mm-hmm. and had the weekend to mull over that debate. So from where we sit on this Monday, we want to know from our listeners what still stuck with them right. from the debate. a few responses over on the texas standard facebook page including three words getting quite a bit of run and those are true to form of course representative beto o'rourke's response to senator cruz after the senator responded to a request to say something nice about his opponent and in doing so compared him to far left-leaning vermont senator bernie sanders layla blackshear called o'rourke's line the best burn of the night but Ben Trader in San Antonio writes that I like Beto's positive and unifying message, but I think it's foolish to discount that during most of the debate, Cruz had him on the defensive.
0: Let us hear from you, Texas. Tweet us right now at Texas Standard. Michael Marks back in 35.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at SaveNowForCollege.org. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group. Providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com.
0: Business and your money on the standard. I'm David Brown. The price of oil jumped to a new four-year high today. This in the wake of an OPEC meeting Over the weekend and word that Saudi Arabia and Russia will not be increasing oil production despite calls from the US so how is this gonna move the needle closer to home here to tell us more energy insider Matt Smith he's director of commodity research at Clipper data and he joins us every couple of weeks here on the standard Matt welcome back thank you very much so uh, Brent crude oil hitting uh, $80 on Friday then bumping up again uh, this morning Uh, West Texas Intermediate crude uh, seems to have been lagging of late, some 10% lower. What gives?
6: Yeah, it it is lagging, but unfortunately it is getting caught in the slipstream. And so as Brent crude prices push to this four-year high, breaking above that $80 mark, uh, we're seeing WTI rising as well. Uh, The reason that we're seeing such a disparity between the two is that Brent benchmark is more under the influence of global impacts. And so as we're seeing Iran getting sanctions placed on them, we're seeing high concerns on a global basis. We're in the U.S. here. We're really strong in terms of production. We're butting up against 11 million barrels a day in terms of production. And at the same time, we're having pipeline constraints and issues of of being able to get that crude to market. And so that's really uh, putting uh, the, the, the brakes a little bit on WTI while races away from us here.
0: All right, so let's try to translate this in ways that are meaningful for everyday Texans. I guess what? We're looking at eventual uh, price hikes at the pump, and what does it uh, mean for uh, those in the industry working out there in uh, in the Permian Basin and the like?
6: Well sure, the the differential between that global benchmark and WTI is not as much a concern when you see that actual price of WTI at $71 a barrel. And so that's going to keep, uh, the activity going uh, is going to also impact us at the pump as well, although we're at the time of year when gasoline prices on a retail basis are, are on their ebb and they should bottom out in uh, December, all else being equal. But what we're seeing in terms of production being encouraged by the higher prices, but those constraints are meaning that we're seeing a, a number of different issues. One particular one is something called ducks.
0: I know what these are. are. These are these drilled uh, wells that uh, are uncompleted, right?
6: Ah, I thought you were going to make a joke then. Um, (laughs) No, it is. It's true. Um, And the amazing thing with these ducks is that they're they're built up particularly in the Permian Basin, and so there's over 8,000 on a national basis. Wow. uh, 43% 43% of those sort of 3,600 of them are in the Permian Basin and that number is continuing to rise and so Even though they're, they're being developed. They're just not being brought uh, to, to completion because there just isn't the ability to get them out of there.
0: Uh, well, so what does what does that add up to if you have these? Uh, drilled but uncompleted wells uh, pockmarking the Permian
6: It's really causing uh logistical issues but those are trying to be solved so it's just try how do we get those barrels out of there whether it's by truck or whether it's by rail whether it's by pipelines uh, being uh, developed quicker than they they were previously or Mm. being switched from being an NGL pipeline to a crude pipeline and so we're seeing uh, all manner of different uh, events underway here really to try and get that crude out of the permian and actually not getting it to the, the gulf coast to the refiner so they can use it they're all already saturated in in light crude oil from the U.S., it's really getting it to the Gulf Coast to be able to pop it onto a ship and to export it. So yeah. uh, that's that's really the, uh, the conundrum we're dealing with here.
0: Well, every couple of weeks or so, Matt Smith visits us to talk about what's happening in the world of oil and energy. He's director of commodity research at Clipper Data. Matt, thanks for the update. We'll talk to you again uh, soon.
6: Sounds good. Thank you. Support
1: for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. School districts across Texas have been grappling with the issue of rebadging schools once named for Confederate leaders, Northeast Independent School District in San Antonio decided to change the name of its Robert E. Lee High School, along with its mascot, and the move was initially met with quite a bit of resistance. As the year's football season moves forward, however, passions about school names, mascots, and traditions can reach a more fevered pitch. Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips stopped by a home game to find out what the mood was.
7: It's an hour before kickoff, and Leeds dance teams are running through their warm-ups. They used to be called the Rebel Rousers and the Dixie Drillers. Not anymore. Now they're the Royal Rubies and the Darling Drillers, part of the effort that also changed the mascot, the fight song, and retired some cheers. The dancers still wear their signature cowboy hats, sequins, and fringe, but team mom Jessica Sanchez feels just not the same.
8: For seniors, at least, that have been there a little bit and have been the original name, it's put a little bit of a a gray cloud over their senior year. The
7: Lee and Lee High School is now an acronym for Legacy of Educational Excellence, not Robert E. Lee. Sanchez was against the change.
8: It's history, and history
2: is history. We can't change that. It had nothing to do with our era or any
7: of these children. Like many schools across the country named after Confederate leaders, San Antonio's Robert E. Lee High School was founded in the 1950s, shortly after court-ordered desegregation. There are currently more than 130 schools named after Confederate soldiers. According to Education Week, roughly three dozen others have changed their names since 2015, after the Charleston church shooting brought renewed attention to Confederate symbols. Kenny Strawn was a senior at Lee High School last year. He made changing the name his mission.
9: He was a general that led a rebellion against the United States. And in no other countries on earth do you see them glorifying generals of armies that fought against them.
7: Strawn says the white supremacist rally at Robert E. Lee's statue in Charlottesville convinced him to push for the name to be removed from his school.
9: It didn't seem like a place where everyone should feel safe should be named after something like that.
7: But at this football game, it was hard to find anyone that supports the name change. Down in the student stands, where the mascot dances in their new costume, 10th grader Gabby Moncaba is worried about school spirit. Everyone's been making fun of the the name change and the new school song, so
2: a lot of people don't approve of it.
7: The mascot used to be a Confederate soldier named Grumpy Gus. Now it's a military service dog. School officials say they spent about $300,000 replacing the mascot, removing the statue of Robert E. Lee in the school lobby, and updating signs. They plan to move that statue and other Confederate-themed artifacts to a museum in the school library. Principal Nicole Franco says they implemented the effort over the summer to get a fresh start for the new school year.
3: We can't afford the distractions. We have four short years with students, and we've got to keep plugging along at what we're here to do.
7: District officials say it would have cost more than a million dollars if they hadn't kept the name Lee and continued calling the athletics teams the volunteers. But it also helped the school community accept the new name. Debra Guevara, who went to Lee in the 80s, wasn't happy about it at first. But sitting in the stands next to the band, watching her grandson, Rudy, perform. She says she's mostly come around because the school is helping him succeed.
2: I look at him and I get all teary-eyed. <laughs> Very smart. going to be our Texas A&M boy in the band. I know it. I have no doubt.
7: Guevara says that's what makes her fall in love with the school all over again. Neal Phillips, Texas Public Radio News.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Screening can lead to early detection. Men age 50 and older are advised to discuss screening with their physicians. More at TexasOncology.com.
3: From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Republican incumbent Senator Ted Cruz and Democratic challenger Representative Beto O'Rourke will meet for their second debate during the Texas U.S. Senate race in less than a week in Houston. Their first debate, held Friday in Dallas, was marked by tough talk and stark policy divides. KERA's Bill Zebel has more.
10: Differences between these two candidates are wide on almost every hot topic where immigration and border security may may be the hottest. Ted Cruz summed up his position in four words, legal good, illegal bad.
4: I think when it comes to immigration, we need to do everything humanly possible to secure the border. That means building a wall, that means technology, that means infrastructure, that means boots on the ground.
10: Cruz said O'Rourke's out of touch with Texas. O'Rourke said Cruz is out of touch.
3: Senator Cruz has sponsored legislation that would have this country build a 2,000-mile wall, 30 feet high at a cost of $30 billion, using the power of eminent domain.
10: Even though, said O'Rourke, a congressman from El Paso, the border is safe. Polls show this closely watched race is also extremely close. In Dallas, I'm Bill Ziebel.
3: Texas added 32,000 jobs in August, marking 26 consecutive months of employment growth. That's according to figures the Texas Workforce Commission released at the end of last week. Lisa Givens is a spokesperson for the agency. She explains the state is seeing growth across industries, but one in particular drove job gains last month. One of the largest industries that we track is professional and business services, which led all the industries with an additional 10,300 jobs over the month of August. Texas also saw a small drop in the unemployment rate in August. Our unemployment dropped slightly to 3.9 percent down from 4% in July. Givens points out several areas in the state saw even lower rates of unemployment. She says they track the unemployment rates in 27 different Metropolitan Statistical Areas or MSAs. 18 of our MSAs are at or below um, 4%. Midland has the lowest unemployment rate in the state at 2.2%. Following that is Amarillo at 2.8% and Odessa at 2.9%. The Austin Round Rock area ranks 4th in Texas at 3% unemployment. Nationwide the unemployment rate is 3.9%. Rain on your wedding day, while a pain, is often considered good luck, but maybe not so much when it rains the night before your nuptials. The Austin Fire Department on Saturday helped rescue dozens of wedding guests in nearby Liberty Hill from rising waters after the San Gabriel River flooded. Brett Britton, one of the wedding guests getting ready for bed in a tent, described the scene to KXAN, the local NBC affiliate in Austin
10: just as we were getting settled on the air mattress in the tent we realized it was starting to float
3: in total 61 people were evacuated from the wedding venue site that's look at news from across the state I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard
0: Howdy y'all this is Nick Offerman and you're listening to the Texas Standard hopefully while consuming barbecue and or hunting a pig. I'm Nick Offerman, and you're listening to The Texas Standard. 34 minutes past the hour Texas Standard time. I'm David Brown. A lot of folks think they know Texas music. If so, what do you make of ish D? The 26-year-old Arlington-based music producer has been a presence in North Texas hip-hop for a while now, but his latest album, Marina's Melody, shows he's not content with being boxed in by labels. From KERA North Texas, Hadi
10: Mawagdi takes us for a spin.
9: Uh, where's your volume button,
10: Ozzy? Inside a dark control room at Kitchen Studios in Dallas, music producer Ishmael Davison, more commonly known as Ish-D, consults with the studio engineer. Yeah,
9: well, I mean- I'm right now pulling up the session for this new record called Anyway. It's probably going to be the next record off of Marina's Melody.
10: Usually, Davison tailors albums for other musicians. With Marina's Melody, Davison handpicked musicians to make his vision come to life. The beats are jumpy and excitable, inspired by house music from the 90s. And it's a new sound for him.
9: I'm notorious for genre hopping. And that's just because growing up in a small town with lots of different people and races and cultures, like you, I got a lot of everything. So I got a lot of rock music. I got a lot of like top 40 pop. I'm kind of all over the place.
10: Davison's from San Angelo. He cut his teeth as a producer there, selling beats on the internet. A tough sell in a city where the roots rock and roll of Los Lonely Boys was the dominant sound.
9: Man, it was terrible, (laughs) and I say that because there was a huge disconnect, right? So trying to explain to kids, like, hey, I want to make beats, like, they didn't understand that concept. So there was lots of teasing, you know, lots of name-calling or whatever.
10: Even before Ish-D ever dreamed of making beats, he was just a polo shirt-wearing Kanye West fan who struggled to play an instrument.
9: Mostly I was playing the baritone, which is not a cool, yeah, you get no respect on that instrument, you know. At that time, I was like 5 foot, maybe 110 pounds, so it's just like, imagine this super scrawny short kid is carrying his big instruments.
10: Two things changed that. The first happened in the mid-2000s.
9: I can remember the summer.
10: Davison was hanging with some cousins, older cousins.
9: I remember sitting in a room and everybody was just nodding their head.
10: And he wondered, why, why is, is everyone nodding, nodding in their head? Their head? Like,
9: oh, this beat is really cool.
10: That sparked it.
9: Oh, the beat. Like, I never paid attention to the beat. And so that just kind of, like, led me down this long path.
10: And the second thing? Well, it was a video game.
9: So you want to be a player, right? A producer, MC, DJ, or even a music video director? It was, like, in the dollar bin. And my dad was like, oh, here's a video game for you.
10: The MTV Music Generator taught Davison the basics of beat making. Eventually, he found more sophisticated software, and the quality of his music improved. That caught the attention of popular Dallas rapper 88killa. 88 88killa
9: 88 and I had met up on Twitter, and he used to buy beats from me or whatever. And so I told him, I was like, hey, I'm moving up there as soon as I graduate high school. And so, basically, I came with a bunch of beats, you know, and he really just tapped me in into, like, what was happening.
10: Soon, Ish-D was a member of the rap group called The Brain Gang. The crew's defunct now, but its members, like 88Killa, Sam Lau, and Bobby Sessions, are some of the city's most promising hip-hop talent.
9: For me, that was the seed, right? Everybody was there. So everybody would come out to see a Brand Gang ADD show. So I had the notoriety of like, okay, here's the guy making all the beats and we need to clearly get with that guy.
10: Now with 10 years and hundreds of songs under his belt, Ish D is pivoting.
9: I think it's a little bit more freedom for me in 2018 because everything in rap music is like super trap based and I got to the point where that was so monotonous for me
10: Marina's Melody showcases Davison's versatility as a producer he's traded the syrupy narcotic infused beats of trap music for the shuffling rhythms and jewel-toned harmonies of house music the new sound might set him apart, but he just hopes he'll hear his music streaming out of someone's car. Reporting from KERA North Texas, I'm Hadi Mawagdi for the Texas Standard.
1: Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where Hornfrog Frog faculty strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor of Education, Michelle Bommel, whose I Engage Camp helps prepare middle schoolers to be engaged citizens. TCU, lead on.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. At pivotal moments in our lives, often moments of crisis, many of us will interact with doctors. They may be delivering a child, or delivering some very bad news or making a decision that could end a life. All of those scenarios could be very emotional or trying on us, of course. But how does it affect the doctor? For our Spotlight on Health, we explore this through a new book called Also Human, the Inner Lives of of doctors. Caroline Elton is the author. She draws from decades of experience working with doctors as patients. She's a psychologist. Caroline, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. How did you come to specialize as a psychologist for doctors?
8: Well, probably by accident, actually. Um, There's a great Stanford uh, psychologist who has a theory of um, planned happenstance in careers. And I would definitely say that is how my own career uh, panned out I didn't set out to work with doctors but then there was chance events that's how things panned out in the end
0: you know one of the reasons I wanted to ask you that question was because you know there are doctors who often choose their specialties for very personal reasons sure and uh, they find ultimately that once they get there perhaps because they are so deeply emotionally invested they find it difficult to continue as doctors
8: Sure. So in the book, I give examples of people who've lost a parent to cancer and they end up going into oncology or palliative medicine. Uh And that can add a a particular commitment and passion. But sometimes as well, if if it's just too involved and it feels too close, like one uh, client of mine described it as scratching open a wound, then then it can be problematic
0: what do they do do, they do as in your experience do they soldier forward and, and, and keep up or
11: what
8: happens um, sometimes I mean specialties are very broad so that even if you're working as an oncologist or palliative medicine you can have a a week, an occupational week that is more patient focused or more on training junior doctors, nurses, or whatever. So some alter the balance within the specialty, mm-hmm. and then others, if it's not, if they're not too far down in their career, can change specialty.
0: What what, are, what do you find as you uh, talk to these doctors, are common psychological challenges?
8: Oh golly, there's there there are so many. I think the exposure to suffering, to pain, to distress, the suffering of the patient and the suffering of the the relatives. I think sometimes, and I think this is one way in which things have become harder, the expectations of patients that can be unrealistic and, and family members. And then I think, yeah, so there, uh, there's powerlessness and then there can be frustration when patients don't look after themselves mm-hmm. as the doctor would like them to look after themselves. And, and, and another really big issue is just trying to have all those years of medical school and then post-medical school training with a family and and how you you figure out that particular balance
0: i think a, a big part of the thrust of of your new book is that we've lost sight of the importance of of the doctor's well-being well as patients you know we we expect the doctor as you say to to perhaps we have unrealistic expectations about what doctors can provide but i'm wondering since a lot of people listening to you you know will interact with doctors primarily as patients why Does it matter, why should they be aware or care that doctors are, as you put it, also human?
8: Because I think the relationship between the doctor and the patient is really at the heart of good clinical practice. And there's a lot of work and doctors are taught communication skills and all sorts of work that goes on in enhancing empathy of the doctor. But I think if the patient, just for a moment, just no more than a moment, can remember that the doctor is also human and the doctor, we don't know what they've just been doing before they come to interact with us, because obviously that's confidential. But they may have been doing some really difficult stuff, as you've outlined. And if we can just, as patients, keep that in mind, I think we're gonna have a better relationship with our doctors. And better relationships with the doctors means better clinical care.
0: It seems like there's another level of this too, because as you point out in in your book, there are studies that show that physician burnout is linked with an increase in medical errors
8: sure and not only i mean that's been very well documented so burnt out physicians make more mistakes but also burnt out physicians have less satisfied patients and less satisfied patients are less likely to follow through all the the medical advice and the regimen that they may have been prescribed so there are numerous ways in which um, the well-being of the doctor ultimately will trickle down to the well-being of the patient.
0: Do you think that not enough is being done to deal with or address the challenges facing doctors today when it when it comes to the their
8: inner lives? Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely the case, and I'm not alone in in saying that. And there's some really excellent work. Uh, Tate Shannevelt, who is now at Stanford, Stanford, but was previously at the Mayo Clinic, is a kind of world leader on, on 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 this on this aspect. And I think, in a way, doctors are a victim of their own success in the past. How so? G-5, because what they can do, the treatments that they can offer for so many diseases are just astounding. Um, whether it's treatments for cancer, treatments for heart disease. You know, and so the the infectious diseases, which prior to antibiotics were major killers and now in most situations are not because doctors can do all these amazing things. We've somehow lost sight of the fact that the doctor is also another human being in relation with the patient and um, and that burnt out doctors will have less satisfied and Mm -hmm. less well cared for patients i mean
0: how is have you been able to identify a trend i mean are we in fact seeing more burnout or or... yeah
8: yeah i think i think that that has been very well documented and and it's not just in the u.s and it's in 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 the uk and throughout throughout western europe it's in canada uh, australia south africa so yes i think i think that uh, there is a general there is a general trend of doctors being less satisfied and more burnt out, as in part I think the expectations and the demands of their job in, increase without any concomitant attention or without adequate attention to the emotional impact of this work. If, for example, let's let's just take you know a very tiny premature babies. Mm-hmm that 30, I don't know, 30 years ago would not have survived babies of, I don't know, 25, 30 weeks. And now they do survive. But looking after those tiny babies, managing the hopes and the expectations, that's a major psychological piece of work. It's not only the doctor who's doing that, of course, the nurses, the midwives, all sorts of other healthcare professionals, but the some of the successes of medicine bring with them very complex psychological and ethical challenges. Equally, you see it towards the end of life.
0: This is a, It's a fascinating book, a wake-up call, not just for the medical profession, but for patients. The book is called Also Human, The Inner Lives of Doctors. The author, Caroline Elton, speaking with us from London. Dr. Elton, thank you so much for joining us on The Texas Standard.
8: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Coming up on 49 Minutes Past the Hour, Texas Standard Time. We're going to have more on Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy
1: AG. Coming up, stay with us. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org.
0: This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. To our immediate south, a populist is set to take office as president in December, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO they call him, who rose to strength promising to crack down on corruption and, as some politics watchers characterized it, make Mexico great again, despite fears that his ideas about law enforcement and nationalizing business might come with considerable dangers. Well, now political observers are raising concerns about the rise of another populist of a different stripe, this time in Brazil. He's a seven-term congressman from Rio who courts the rich and the military as much as he courts controversy. He has said things like he'd prefer a dead son to a gay one, or that he wouldn't rape a congresswoman because she was ugly. Retired military captain Jair Bolsonaro is leading in the polls for Brazil's presidency. A vote just two weeks away. Kurt Wayland is professor of government at the University of Texas, Austin. Professor Wayland, thanks for speaking with us on the Standard.
11: Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm
0: happy to. The Economist magazine recently reported that were uh, Bolsonaro to win this election, it might put the very survival of democracy in Latin America's largest country at risk. That's a very large thing to say about uh, a, one uh, candidate. Do you think that they're on something here?
11: Yes, I think there is a um, serious reason for concern. In the sense that we have seen that populist leaders in Latin America often use their elected position to hollow out and strangle democracy from the inside in a gradual process in which they try to concentrate power, to dismantle checks and balances, put pressure on the opposition, try to win more and more hegemony over public opinion. And so slowly over the course of a few years, like Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela or Evo Morales did in Bolivia, slowly these elected leaders used their um, legal and paralegal powers to essentially suffocate democracy from the inside. And I think there is a Good chance that if Bolsonaro gets elected, that a similar process will occur in Brazil.
0: But it seems like it's more than just Bolsonaro as another populist. It seems like there are specific things that he has done, like, for instance, uh, uh, courting the military and sort of uh, fueling a nostalgia for the uh, uh, dictatorship of the '60s, as I understand it.
11: Yes, because by contrast to Hugo Chávez, Bolsonaro is a right-winger, and so he has um, connections and support in the military. But what is, I think, very, very unlikely that there would be any kind of military coup and that the military as such, as an institution, would step in and take over power as they did in Brazil in 1964. And what is much more likely is this gradual hollowing out of democracy from the inside that we saw from a populist leader in Venezuela, in Ecuador, and in Bolivia in recent years.
0: Of course, uh, Venezuela would be a, a, a kind of populism from the left. What would a populism from the right in Brazil, how would that manifest itself?
11: What you would see is uh, different types of appeals. As I mentioned, Bolsonaro has pointed to the very high level of crime in Brazil. Lots of people are worried, and what they often want is what they call the heavy hand, Mano dura to unleash the police, to crack down on the criminals and kill a few people, similar to what is um, already commonly done by the police in Brazil and in other Latin American countries. And if that leads to a reduction in crime, that could increase his support because lots of people are and tired of the crime wave. And so I think that would be one, one way how he could gain popularity and then use that popularity and his support to um hollow our
0: democracy in the past uh former president Lula's left-wing workers party had uh, uh, lots of popular support uh, but it appears that the nominee of that party Fernando Haddad uh is not doing anything like as well at least in the popular opinion polls as his uh, uh right-wing opponent uh, here mr bolsonaro why why well, do you think that is what's going on there
11: but, but, what you have is first that the Workers' Party governed for 12, 13 years. And so as they reached power very quickly, they enjoyed the perks of power, and they used them, and they installed a bunch of very large-scale corruption schemes, and they occupied the state with their cronies. And so they turned fairly quickly into insiders and through a lot of um, popular rejection. And so um, that is one factor, that the Workers' Party kind of discredited itself, the second thing is that Haddad is a very different candidate from Lula, because Lula was somebody who in a very impressive way, who rose from great poverty, had been born in a poor northeastern North place, to union leadership, and then to the presidency. And so that is something that is very difficult for another PT leader, for example, Haddad, to achieve.
0: Kurt Weyland is Professor of Government at the University of Texas at Austin. Professor, thank you so much for speaking with the Texas Standard.
11: Uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: And you are listening to the Texas Standard. So, as we move into social media on this Monday, I want to bring you the latest from the Associated Press. Uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein uh, was heading to the White House at last word, uh, expecting to be fired by President Donald Trump after reports he had made critical comments and uh, had uh, considered invoking the Constitution. Uh, to have uh, Trump removed from office now joining us here in the studio is Michael Marks He is filling in for Wells Dunbar monitoring social media across Texas, and I will bet Texans are talking about this
5: Just another uh, quiet week at yeah. 1600 Pennsylvania, right David? Right, indeed. You are correct uh, many Texans taking a look at what is happening in Washington when it comes to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein And the the muddied waters of whether Rosenstein resigned already uh, or whether he is on his way to be fired uh, as we speak, uh, that does matter, according to Steve Vladek, friend of the show and professor of law at the University of Texas at Austin. He tweets The resigned fired distinction matters with respect to naming Rosenstein's acting successor. Right. And that's a big deal on other issues. Not just Russia, because Rosenstein was supervising Mueller as acting AG, not deputy AG. So bringing up there that Rosenstein's departure is of particular significance because he was the top Justice Department official overseeing the Mueller investigation. Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself. From that responsibility, we should remind listeners: yeah. if it was up to Stacy Jorgensen in Austin, there would be no resignation. She writes on the Texas Standard Facebook page that Rosenstein should make Trump or Kelly fire him, uh, referring to Attorney General, excuse me, uh, White House chief of staff John Kelly. Right. It's led some to believe that Rosenstein's firing or, or resignations could indeed foretell the president dismissing Robert Mueller, including perhaps Tyler Malloy, who writes on our Facebook page. If Mueller is ousted this week, this administration will be toast. And Doug Ramey, who wrote simply, constitutional crisis, question mark?
0: Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, the highest ranking Senate-confirmed official below Rosenstein is the— well, that would be the Solicitor General, who is uh, Noel Francisco.
11: Mm-hmm. Uh, it,
0: it, it's, it's not clear, though, to me, I mean, if, in fact— um, it, it, Rosenstein were to resign, if that would immediately mean that Francisco would then take control of the Mueller investigation, or or, or not?
5: I believe that is a matter that we will see much more reporting on in the coming Something hours, minutes, minutes days. David, true, right?
0: Uh, of course, uh, we would love to know what you make of this, or anything else that's making news on this Monday. You can always reach out to us on Twitter at texas standard or join facebook and just look up texas standard and of course michael marx is looking for you he's been filling in for wells dunbar social media editor we're going to be back here tomorrow and we hope you can join us on behalf of the entire texas standard team i'm david brown wishing you a marvelous monday and keep it right here
1: philanthropic support for texas standard comes from casey and scott o'hare the winkler family foundation lynn dobson and greg woldridge adrian killam and the george huntington family